So I want to talk about chapter four, and uh, I think some, some, you two guys, I think, were at the debate last week when I was talking with the Noam Cook in the philosophy department. And he actually, he wasn't as, uh, he wasn't as attacking me kind of as much as I had anticipated. I've had people go after me a lot more strongly on that argument. Well, well, a line that that he didn't push as hard as he could have uh, is well. There's sort of two lines for saying that. Well, the, the issue that we're talking about now is 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 what my mind does a computation. Okay, and suppose suppose we set aside any doubts about the world being quantum mechanical and possibly non-deterministic. And we say, okay, the world is deterministic. And so then my brain is a is doing a physical process. And so it seems like that ought to be reasonable to say that's a computation. And uh, then I would say, well, since a PC is a universal computer, I ought to be able to find uh, like a desktop computation that's doing what my brain is doing, although it might be really, really big. And then there's the issue of, would I ever be able to figure out the software for that computation? And that, that's another question, a feasibility issue. Now, some people, some philosophers, and I don't entirely disagree with this viewpoint. They like to nip this right at the root and say, um, Look, what's going on, the experience of being alive, it's just not captured by a deterministic computation. And when you look into your mind, you, you, don't, you, I mean, you certainly don't feel like a, a personal computer. I mean, you don't feel like you're executing lines of code. You don't feel like you're being logical. So um, how do we get around that? And the other, uh, the kind of core thing that, that people tend to fall back on. They say, well, if a, a computer could act just like me, it could uh, maybe say the same kinds of things I did, but deep down it wouldn't have that glow of consciousness that I have. And uh, I'm going to argue that actually there's no reason a computer couldn't have all that too. And we simply what philosophers tend to do is they say, I'm going to model your syntactic behavior. I'm going to model your ability to answer questions. And I'm not going to put into this model anything about your internal states. And then I'm going to say the model's no good because it doesn't have internal states. And so it's sort of a, it's a tautology, their approach. They deny the ability to model your brain's internal processes. And then they say, therefore, you can't do it. But I would argue that with a little more sophistication, we can model the notion of consciousness. And uh, I kind of base my approach on this book I read a couple of years ago by Antonio Damasio. And it's called, I think it's called The Feeling of What Happens. And uh, this, what I really liked about this book was that it's the first time I ever saw somebody try to set up a specific model of how consciousness arises in the brain. And I'll draw two pictures of this for you, or maybe more than two pictures. Yeah, sort of. One picture is on page 256. Didn't Minsky do something similar with this idea of agents? Well, I mean, did Minsky do something similar with this idea of agents? Well, maybe. What an agent is? Yeah, I talk about agents. Uh, an agent, it's. Well, well, somebody mentioned Minsky, and you're talking about agents, so maybe let's have a little sidebar on that topic. Minsky, Marvin Minsky, you know, one of the founders of computer science, 
wrote this famous book called The Society of Mind. And he said, uh, one way, or maybe the best way, to think about what's going on in your head is this. It's sort of like a lot of little agents. And by agent, he basically just means a subroutine or a sort of like a program module, something that's doing things for you. Like you could have a multiplier, or you could have something that will rank things for you, or you can have something that will figure out routes, how to get from here to there, or something that will look at people's faces and decide on what mood they're in, or some, another agent that might assess how tired you are, or how hungry you are, or an agent that might keep track of what meals you've eaten. So you'd, you'd sort of delegate these things. It's Would it be anything kind of like, a, like a, an object in an object or yeah, I think an object would be a good a good model for what an agent is. Yeah, it's sort of an object-oriented idea. We'd have we'd have the agent could have some internal state, yes, and then it would have things that it could do. It could have you know these methods that it would do for you, and it uh, you'd think of it as sort of a black box. And what would be inside an agent? An agent might have other agents inside it, or it might then have some more primitive things like neural nets, like a bunch of neural nets. So people are still working, trying to implement Minsky's thing. And there's, there's a lot more in his book, Society of Mind. It's quite a, it's a funny book. It's sort of written, it's a series of one or two page essays about different ideas. It's sort of an agent-like book. It's saying, like, here's just this heap of ideas, and you can hook them together, and you'll get the brain. Um, but, and yeah, later today, I'm going to say, if you were going to try to evolve a mind, that would probably be, that'd be one reasonable kind of architecture to try to use. There's this pattern that we talk about in object-oriented programming in software engineering. We talk about patterns. And there's a certain pattern. I can't remember the name of the pattern. It's where you have a, let's see. It's a, like graphic user interfaces have this, this pattern. It's where you have an, a sort of, an, uh, well, you could think of this as an agent. And then the member of an agent, it can either have some sort of primitive things, some sort of neural net primitive things, or it can have as members uh, other agents. So it's this sort of nested architecture where you, see, you, know, you can go down, this agent is made of agents, and they're made of sub-agents. But then at the bottom, the agents are always, the lowest level, you'll have things like neural nets or little uh, state machines. Anyway, uh, getting back to the other thing I wanted to talk about, I want to say a little about this idea that consciousness is something that is amenable to being modeled in a computer. And the idea is uh, your brain, you have different things inside your brain. You have a model of the world, and there's sort of two levels. You have objects, and then you link the objects together into something that Damasio calls the movie in the brain. Then you have a model of yourself, okay, a sort of a self symbol. And then you're also aware of the interaction between yourself and the movie in the brain. And Damasio says this is sort of where consciousness sets in. Okay? It's you're active in the world, you see objects. You get a movie in the brain, images of the world's objects, plus an image of your body. Then you get uh, an image of your body that includes your current sensations. Then you, you think about your feelings. You think about how your, yourself is doing relative to the world. And the idea, he says, consciousness involves continually forming feelings about how yourself is interacting with the world. And these are all things that are amenable to modeling in a computer. 
See, normally, when the philosophers say you can't model consciousness, they stop at this. They say, I'm going to model objects. I'm going to model movie in the brain. Okay? Maybe I'll have a symbol of myself in the world. Okay? But then they say, you know, they kind of neglect the fact that you can go ahead and model how yourself is in your feelings that you have about yourself, how you're doing, you know, keeping track of how you're doing, then anticipations about how you're going to do, plans, uh, watching your feelings. So these are all things that it just is putting in a few more levels. Another argument that you sometimes hear from philosophers, they talk about qualia. They say, suppose, uh, suppose that I knew everything there was to know about color theory. I knew like wave, the electromagnetic frequency of uh, light that looks red, and I knew which objects are red. But suppose that I never had opened my eyes. And then I open my eyes and I see red. And I've got this, this, this sort of feeling you have of seeing something red. And they'd say, that's quintessentially human and unamenable to re realization by any robotic system. But, you know, I don't know. That's, there's really nothing there because We've got this system where we're seeing, you know, this red, what is the qualia red for me? Or the, the singular qualia is sometimes quail. It's you know, part of its associations that I have with redness. So that's something I could do, hypertext, links. It's also, there could just be some sort of little buzzer in the robot that goes off when it sees red. I feel like there could be this little area that gets stimulated. And if you like red, you might assign a positive value to that thing being stimulated. And so then it'll say, I'm getting positive vibes here. I'm happy. I'm watching my feelings. My feelings are up because I'm, I'm seeing this thing. I love red. I feel good. It's, it, it's, it just seems like there's no reason you can't model just about all of it. So that's... Uh, now, I used to take a different line with this. I used to be a little more, when I was saying that everything is an infinite set, when I was in my 30s, instead of now I'm in my late 50s, I'm saying everything's a computation. Then I, I still was curious about this idea of consciousness. And then first I was kind of obsessed with this idea that like one of the few direct quotes from God that you find in the Bible is Moses says to God, what's your name? And God says, I am that I am. And then it seemed kind of cool to me because when you strip away your essence of feeling like yourself, what do you say you are? You say, well, I am. There's this sort of inner core, this sort of flame inside your head, this flickering flame. It's this I am-ness. I have, as I say, I've always sort of liked the mystic philosophy where we feel like God is in everything. So then that would, that would be kind of nice if God says his name or her name is I am, and I am is what's inside of each of us. And I used to have this image that a person is like a stained glass, a stained glass image of a figure, and God is like light that's shining through the stained glass. It's the thing that lights you up. So there's something existence. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, the theologian, said God is pure existence unmodified. So his idea was the essence of, of the divine is just to simply exist. And it's certainly true that if I write down a, a computer program, unless the program is actually implemented, there's, there's something that's added when you, you actually bring it, you put it onto an actual machine in the world. And sometimes it's hard to put your finger on what it is that you're adding. I mean, it's still the same program. I mean, over here it was a, an idea on paper, and here it's in a machine. You're adding existence to it. So you might say, well, maybe consciousness is simply existence. That's a view I've kind of often subscribed to. And if you follow that path all the way, then you end up saying that everything is consciousness. Everything, excuse me, everything is conscious. Which, again, that's an idea I've always liked. Uh, like this piece of chalk is conscious. Now, 
I can't talk to the chalk, but it knows things. If I, if I drop it, it knows to fall down. And that's pretty smart. I mean, how does it know to do that? Who taught it? It's conscious. Uh, so, so my sense is that either we can model consciousness, or if you're going to say consciousness is something mystical and, and magical and divine, then it's sort of like this moisture that gets all over everything. It's like you're in the tropics and everything in your suitcase is damp. And I'm not going to be able to keep existence and divinity and consciousness from being on some this, this device on the table here that's made of all these wires and things. Okay. So I, I think either way you look at it, it's well just the whole idea that there'd be something so unique about us. I mean, what are we? We're just like these sea sponges or these these corals, these big rats on two legs. I mean. Why would we be so different from everything else in the universe? It's a completely not a very reasonable idea. And when we're getting into these machines that we're building, yes, they are very crude now, and it's easy to make fun of them, but there's no reason that in 100 years they might not really reach the point of being, uh, being conscious. So I don't really see a problem with that. Um, now I mentioned yeah, consciousness here, you really, really self-aware. I think, yeah. Well, you could use consciousness in various senses. You could use it to mean self-aware. You can use it to mean having the divine light, you know. But, but, but when we talk about computer consciousness, it yes. really means representing a self-aware individuality. Well, I think you'd want it to be... be yeah, you'd want to be self-aware, and you'd want to be kind of aware that it's aware. There's this sort of regress that happens with consciousness. You're aware, you're aware that you're aware, you're aware that you're aware that you're aware. So you want, wanted to do all of that, and not just with some cheat, you know, not just by a, a simple recursion. You wanted to have some sort of meat to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Outside of myself than I was when I was, when I was younger. You know, I feel like that's getting bigger. Well, it's true. You're, over your life, though then sometimes people look at it the other way and they say, uh, you know, I was so in tune with the cosmos when I wasn't worrying about the things that now I worry about. But usually the point you're making is that as you grow, your consciousness gets larger. There's also a distinction between awake and asleep. There's, we can do a lot of things with the word conscious. There's a book called uh, Consciousness, a User's Guide that, uh, by a brain, a brain scientist, and he gets into some of those distinctions that you mentioned. Um, but my, my feeling is that there's always people talk about Turing's test. If can a computer convince you that it's alive. And uh, there's something to that test. Uh, when you meet people, they also seem to have different degrees of consciousness. Uh, sometimes you will talk to somebody and not be able to get on the same wavelength with them and not be able to feel like you're exchanging and getting it. And so if we had some machine where you actually enjoyed talking to it more than a lot of people, then you'd be you'd be very tempted to say that it's it's conscious. But um, again, I, I do take sort of a dialectic approach. It doesn't necessarily bother me to believe two diametrically opposite things. I mean, I can see the point where I you know I can argue myself blue in the face, but then I can think, you know, if I'm just sitting out in the sun looking at a tree. It's, I t tend not to think of myself as a computation at all. But 
Actually, for the last year or two, I've been kind of working on convincing myself that maybe even then I'm a computation. And uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting, interesting way to be. It's not necessarily reductive or negative to think that. Because the whole thing I'm doing in this, this book and this course, it's never that I'm never saying the world is just a computation or the mind is just a computation. I'm not reducing things. I want to say the idea of computation is so much richer than we've ever realized because it doesn't have to be just be done by these beige boxes. So, so if you go over to Buddhism or Zen or something like that, they, they would, I don't think they'd have any problem with this notion at all. They'd just say, well, everything really, reality is not dual, right? And this is, everything here is competition. Yeah. Well, yeah, so you're saying maybe in Eastern, the, like the Zen philosophy, they're more comfortable with saying there's only one kind of thing. And maybe Western philosophy is more inclined towards dualism, saying this body and mind. And then, and then we can say what the body wants is bad and what the spirit wants is good. <laughs> then we can get money from you. <laughs> But uh, though whether, whether Buddhism would be comfortable saying everything is a computation, that's not something that I, well, of course, it's not a concept that you really hear in, I mean, most of the texts are older kinds of things, and that whole worldview. Yeah, the problem is all kinds of things. Yeah. Some of them are involved in all this myth and others. Yeah. I don't know. The uh, speaking of Zen, there's kind of a cool little poem by R.D. Lang I found in here. Let's read. Let me read this to you. He says, "I am doing it." So by it, that means the con your consciousness, your state of mind. I am doing it. Then he says, "The it I am doing is the I that is doing it." So I am doing it. I'm generating this consciousness. This consciousness that I'm making is, in fact, the I that is doing it. I am doing it. The it I am doing is the I that is doing it. The I that is doing it is the it I am doing. It is doing the I that am doing it. I am being done by the it I am doing. It is doing it. So that, that does get into kind of a Zen thing. It is doing it. That's, that's the kind of thing you, you would expect to hear. And that is sort of relaxing when you, you think, well, maybe it's not up to me, the crown of creation, to control reality. I'm a process. I'm just something that's happening. I'm like a, a branch waving in the wind. And that's always a good way to be. I think. Now, the, the so that's sort of stuff coming out of section four four. I want to say a little about section four five now, and that's where I describe the life box, which I don't have to say too much about it because I've talked about it pretty much in here a few times. Uh, I have this idea. There's a little quote here from a story I wrote. Maybe I'll just read that. The life box is a little plastic black thing the size of a pack of cigarettes, and it comes with a lightweight headset with a pinhead microphone like the kind that office workers use. You can use your life box to create your life story to make something to leave for your children and grandchildren. Frank Watts is an old man using a life box. His name is Ned. White-haired Ned is pacing in his small backyard, a concrete slab with some beds of roses. He's talking and gesturing, wearing the headset and with the life box in his shirt pocket. The life box speaks to him in a woman's pleasant voice. 
The marketing idea behind the life box is that old duffers always want to write down their life story. And with a life box they don't have to write, they can get by with just talking. The life box software is smart enough to organize the material into a shapely whole, like an automatic ghost writer. The hard thing about creating your life story is that your recollections aren't linear. They're a tangled banyan tree of branches that split and merge. The life box uses hypertext links to hook together everything you tell it. Then your eventual audience can interact with your stories, interrupting and asking questions. The life box is almost like a simulation of you. So that's, that's an idea I've been thinking about for a few years. And it seems it's just on the verge of being a product that's going to actually be made. Like the Nokia phone company, they have some software called the Life Blog. You can already, and you can like put combine photos and blog. And it seems to me that's that's something more and more people are going to be doing. In a way, I do it already with my blog because I think I put photos on there. I try to record. I've started podcasting. Uh, why bother doing it? Um, well. It's like the Egyptians putting up a pyramid, you know. It's like you want to make this kind of monument uh, to yourself. Is it fear of death? That's that's one reason for a life box. The other would be, uh, as you get more and more information, you, you would you could kind of turn over things to it. So if somebody has a question for you, you could just say, you know, give them a link to the life box. In a, in a really low-level way, there's a feature like in Firefox or Internet Explorer where it'll automatically fill in forms for you. So that's, you've sort of delegated part of your things. It's become a little bit your life box. You get this, you know, a form on a web page, and it'll automatically fill those entries in for you. And you can imagine doing this to a little bit more of a degree. Like if there are people. The thing is, most of the time, it's you'd, I'd rather talk to people in person than have a program talk to them for me. But I suppose it might be, maybe, maybe if I were teaching and I had a really heavy load and I had like 20 students scheduled to come to my office and ask the same, more or less the same kinds of questions, there would be a time when you'd say, I, I wish I could automate this. But there was a, a fellow graduate student um, who's like a few years ahead of me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a few years back, he said he contacted you to interview you for a Switch Journal. Yeah. And he told him to just uh, copy and paste bits of other interviews you've already done. Yeah, I might have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I'm already doing it. <laughs> yeah, I have all my email oh, interviews yeah. online. <laughs> So when people want to interview me, I'll say, well, why don't you read this? And then you can take from there. Or if you have a new question, then I can add to it. Usually I do answer people's questions. There's something about the way he approached me that, that made me give him that sort of, I don't remember exactly what it was. There's uh, another thing, it seems, I mean, a lot of times, if you want to introduce yourself to somebody, you'll give them a link to your home page. You know, if you're an employer, or I don't see people usually do that with dates, or maybe they do. You meet a girl, and you say, "Here's my home page. Uh, go check it out, and let's get back together." They'll do it. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll hunt you down. They'll Google you. Yeah. So part of that, it's, so it's a way of putting yourself, it's sort of an adjunct to your personality. Now, the, when I use Lifebox in the book title, I'm actually saying, well, what if we could kick it up a notch? In other words, what if I had a, like a home page with my blog and all this other stuff where it, was, it had some software that would animate it a little bit? So in other words, you could ask it, something and it would sort of root out on its own an answer. And at a primitive level, I mean, you could say, again, like use the example of a blog, like my blog has a, 
a little field where you can type in some word and search the blog, and it'll come up you know, with several entries. And you could imagine something that would do that in the background. You would say something. It would do speech recognition. It would maybe not understand what you're saying, but at least it would get the keywords. It would look up. It would find some, some phrases that sort of relate to that and give the illusion a little bit of illusion or a conversation. Well, it's something you inch up towards. If you have a large enough database, you can actually fool people for quite a long time because you won't be repeating yourself. And these things will be a little off the wall, but you'll say, well, they're just a little bit flaky. You know. They actually made a model. Who did that? Federal Express, for some bizarre reason, made a robot of Philip K. Dick that uh, I don't know who talked them into this. And, and uh, they made this software where basically got this database of, you know, Philip K. Dick wrote dozens, dozens of books. So they've got all this word verbiage in there. And then if you ask this robot something, it'll root around in that database and, and say something that will be, you know, vaguely to the point. And uh, so that's a, that's a technique that's already being used for. But the thing is, kicking it up a level, that's the, one of the big, still unsolved hard problems in artificial intelligence is natural language understanding. And like when you go on the phone and you're talking to a, a robot to make like a plane reservation, you can, it can understand what you're talking about because it's agreed, you know, you're going to talk about a very limited range of topics. It's sometimes when you talk to your in-laws, it can be like that. There's this severely restricted range of topics that you're allowed to discuss, you know, and this very limited number of opinions that can be expressed. And as soon as you get off track, you know, you get, you know, error in input, you know, you get this complete blank looks from the... <laughs> yeah. Or they just ignore you, no response. But. The full natural language understanding, that's, that's a hard problem. And that's one of those really tough problems. If we had that, then we'd be, I don't know, that would be a really big step towards having a, you know, a conscious machine. Because that's really the hard part. And they're inching towards that, but there's some sense that they don't have the right approach yet. Well, it's, it's such a hard problem, you don't know where to begin. Um, they used to, I mean, they've tried various approaches. They've tried this sort of hypertext approach, just linking all the associations that every word has, and then trying to put together a plausible interpretation. My favorite example, and they do, but it's, it's not totally bad. I mean, even Google, there's those language translations. You can go to an Italian page and, and do it in English. But I think maybe translating is still easier than understanding what it's about somehow. It's somehow a little bit different of a game. Um, but that would be the long-term thing. Now, maybe uh, I, I think we could evolve something to animate the life box. And so that's sort of the next topic that I want to talk about. That's in section 4.6 called the mind recipe. And uh, there's two problems. I think I've mentioned this in here before. Uh, one problem is the sort of hardware problem to get a computer whose flop, when I say flop, that means floating point operation and per second is understood. So if I say gigaflop, I'm talking about something that does like a billion. Today, with our machines, they tend to talk in terms of hertz. but Probably hertz, that's the number of clock cycles that your machine has. Like our, our machines now are typically gigahertz processors. But um, what we're going to be seeing, I think, in the, the coming years, we're already starting to see, it'll be more common to have a processor with, with two cores or, or multiple cores. And then it, it won't be so much how many clock cycles it has per second, but how many instructions it's going to do per second. And if you get more massively parallel systems, that then it really 
So then you can talk about instructions per second, or the word flop, I've always liked the sound of it. And so there's this, this thing that uh, I love, there's this scale of prefixes, uh, kilo, mega, giga, tera, teta, exa. Then the, the others are less well known. Then you get zeta, yada, zena, wada, and sort of made up from here on. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so this is 10 cubed, 10 to the 6th, 10 to the 9th, 10 to the 12th. Peta is 10 to the 15th. X is 10 to the 18th. Zeta. They have a sort of logic to the name. I mean, mega, that means like big in Latin. And giga, what does giga mean? I've forgotten. Giga means giant. Oh, yeah. Mega means large. Giga means giant. Terra means monster. Peta, that's like for five because that's 10 to the 15th. Exa is sort of like six, so that's for uh, 18th, which is uh, 10 to the six times three. And then they said there's the International Bureau of Science. They said we're running out of prefixes. So let's start with Z here and work our way forward from there. So we'll do Z, Y, X, W. I was just writing. I haven't decided what V would be, but for you, I think it should be Abba. <laughs> Abba, Abba. Abba flop. <laughs> but where we are, uh, present day computers, they're, they're getting into the tera zone, like the so-called supercomputers can do like 100 teraflops. These days, a supercomputer in the old days, it was like the big iron days. It would be this thing that Cray made or Silicon Graphics. But now the architecture that they're using is to have a bunch of just Intel machines that are networked using Linux. And uh, but those with those things, they can get 100 teraflops. So we're we're kind of getting here. Now, when when I first got a computer in the 80s. I think we were looking at kiloflops. Now we're giga, we, mega was about 10 years ago. So we keep getting higher. Now, the guess is that humans are somewhere around here. Now, it could be we've overlooked something, okay? But uh, the sense is that there's this Moore's Law idea, which says that every uh, Every 15 years, we get 1,000 times as fast. So in 2005, we're at the gigaflop level. In 1990, we're at the megaflop level. In 1975, we're at the kiloflop level. Uh, and then by 2020, we'll all have teraflop machines. By 2035, we'll be getting petaflop and 20. Uh, 2050, exaflop. And so somewhere between 2035, 2050, we're going to be having desktop machines whose capacity is probably equivalent to a human being. And I might also mention the memory tends to go hand in hand with that. Generally speaking, like a megaflop machine, megahertz machine, tended to have megabyte RAM. Now we've got gigaflop machine. It's typical to have a, almost a gigabyte of RAM on your machine. These things sort of go hand in hand. The RAM, they sort of increase the size of the memory and the speed. Now, where do we get the idea that a person is between PETA and EXA? Well, I have this sort of table on page 280. And it's always sort of a, a game. It's kind of fun to do this. The, the idea is we say, well, look, we've got 10 to the 11th neurons. And uh, a neuron has about 1,000 synapses. 
Sometimes not that many, but a lot of them have actually that many. Okay. And then that's where like one neuron connects to another. Now updating a synapse. How many uh, machine steps is that? Well, I, I said, well, maybe it's like 30 machine steps. Okay, why did I say that? Well, I said, well, maybe there's only a couple of bytes of computer state for each synapse. Now, that might be, that might be a radical underestimate. Maybe that's way too simple. But I'm saying maybe to update what's going on at a synapse, I just need to do some simple operations, like, like adding together what's coming in there and then maybe multiplying by a constant. So it's something like 30 machine instructions. So this is very iffy. Okay. And then uh, we say how fast does the neuron update? The rate of your neuron, it's about, it can do about 100 updates a second. Okay. So actually a neuron updates 10 times a second. Let's say simulating a firing event takes 10 sub-updates themselves, so maybe 100 computational updates. Now, uh, if we multiply these four numbers, what we get is 3 times 10 to the 17th uh, updates per second going on in your brain. Okay? And then... Um, So 3 times 10 to the 17th is what? Well, that's just shy of exa. Exa is 10 to the 18th. Okay, so I've got something like 300 petaflop. So this is on the order of 300 petaflop. So just shy of exaflop. So that is, suppose we're going to make this brute force simulation of the brain. We'd have 10 to the 11 neurons. Each neuron would have 1,000 synapses. Updating a synapse, and we'd do some update in parallel like a giant cellular automaton. So let's suppose maybe it'd take 30 machine instructions to update a synapse, where probably you'd just be doing something fairly crude, just adding together a couple of numbers. And then uh, the rate at which the brain runs, the brain does about 100. You'd need to be doing about 100 update steps a second to simulate the brain operation. So again, so we're saying it looks as if I had a 300 petaflop machine. It would run as fast as the brain. Okay, um, so that's cool. Now the, and we'll probably have machines like that by 2050. So does that mean we'll have intelligent robots by 2050? Well, no, this is the catch I've mentioned before. It's like, when you buy a computer, I mean, it comes to your house, like maybe Dell mails it to you, and there's not much software on it. You know, you've got Windows, but, you know, unless you paid for it, you don't have Microsoft Word, you know, you don't have Mathematica, you don't have Photoshop. It can't do anything. So we've got this computer. You say, here's your human equivalent computer, and you turn it on, and, you know, it just, you get, the Windows flag, you know, picture of Bill Gates' latest icon, you know. <laughs> then you try to talk to it, and it just sits there. So where do I get the software? Well, that's the hard part, because we're born with most of the software. Uh, we talked uh, last time, when we had the last lecture, we, I talked about this idea that the, the brain is this, you know, tangled net of neurons, they're all connected to each other. There's kind of there's this huge amount of wiring in there. And the way it's wired up is something that you're born with. And it's something that evolution figured out over, uh, well, you know, millions of years. There's been a whole lot of people, you know, for millions of years, evolving natural selection. We Even if you go back you want to, if you really want to be honest about it, you have to kind of push all the way back to the cockroaches or whatever and evolve up from there. So then, uh, well, okay, maybe I want to do that on a computer. So then, just for kicks, I got, got wild and crazy. I did another table on uh, page 289 about how long it would take to evolve. Suppose I make a computer, I say, 
Look, it's too hard to figure out how to program AI. I'm just going to evolve the human race inside this computer. And so then, how would I do that? You'd say, well, look, let's have a, I'll do this, and then we'll take our break. So I'd say something like, let's have a population of 10 to the 6th. So a little population, not a huge population, a million. Let's, uh, let's do for years, let's do a million years of evolution. Okay. And then, uh, so the number of brain years that I need to simulate is 10 to the 12th. Okay. And then, uh, so I want to simulate 10 to the 12th brain years. But um, let's see. I figured out here that a brain runs at 3 times 10 to the 17th operations per second. So uh, I will need to do. Gee, there's a big mistake in my book here. <laughs> I mixed up the second and the year, it looks like. I say I need to do 10 to the 12 brain years. Okay, so if I do that, page 289. So, and then I said I have to do 10 to the 12 brain years. Now, to compute a brain year, I need to do 3 times 10 to the 17th updates per second, but then I need to throw in times the number of seconds per year. Now, it looks to me that I didn't multiply by the number of seconds per year. Jeez. Uh, How many seconds are there in a year? Um, Well, I know a billion, a billion seconds is 30 years, so it's a 30th of a billion. So this number of seconds per year is a billion, plus 10 to the 9th over 30. So the number I came up with here, like an idiot, was 3 times the number of brain years, 10 to the 12th, times 3 times 10 to the 17th updates per second. So that gives me 3 times 10 to the 29th, but I need to multiply that by 10 to the 9th over 30 to get the number of seconds per year. Okay, so I can cancel the 3's, and I can divide out uh, the 10 and get an 8 here, and 8 and 29 makes 10 to the uh, 37th. Oh, no, I'm okay. Because I, I said I'm allowed to run the machine for a year. So if I was going to run the year, do the evolution in one second, I'd need to do 10 to the 37 cycles. But I'm allowed to do it, you know, I'm allowed to let the machine run for a whole year. So because of that, I don't need to multiply this factor. So I was right. So there's not a big error. So it's going to be 3 times 20. If I have a machine that runs the rate of 3 times 10 to the 29th, updates per second, and if I let it run for a whole year, then that will give me the number of seconds. Now, can I have a machine that runs that fast? Well, that's a Wadaflop machine, okay? Because we go up 21st, 24th, 27th, 30th. So we're up in the Wadaflop, Whataburger. There's a burger stand, uh, I think in Southern California you see it, Whataburger. Anyway, um, will we ever build machines that fast? I don't know. Probably not. But, well, if Moore's Law just kept up indefinitely, you could say, well, look, what do I need? I need, what do you, what do you? I need 60 more years. Uh, 3,010, I'm going to have the Waterflop machine. So then I can get my desktop machine. I can say evolve the whole human race. Then once you've got that, uh, go ahead and... Uh, Go ahead and uh, figure out the brain, and then I'll have somebody to talk to.
But uh, realistically, when I saw Wolfram at MIT, uh, or not at MIT, in, in, in Cambridge a couple of weeks ago, I was say, giving him an argument, something like this. And he was like, well, look, what we've learned, or what he says he's learned from his research is, is whenever there's a complicated rule to do something, there's also a really simple rule to do something. He's like, we don't need a complicated randomizer. We've got rule 30. You know, a universal computer doesn't have to be complicated. It can be rule 110. He says, if you get some reasonable architecture for simulating the brain, it's probably going to be some very simple rule that will do well enough. If you just throw it, give it a little bit of room to compute on, let it run for a while, it'll probably start generating the right kinds of patterns. And the point he likes to make is because what our rules do is so unpredictable, it's almost, you're almost wasting your time trying to think. It's like, there's this movie with the Marx Brothers. Where they're all trapped in this room. They're locked up. And one of the guys says, we have to think. And Chico says, nah, we already tried that. <laughs> so then they just go and start shaking everything. And the point is, says you might do just as well to just run around the room shaking all the windows. So make a list of the trillion possible brain-like computations and test them all. Do an exhaustive search. And probably there will be one that's not so hard to find. You're probably not going to need a lot of flat machine to find it. And the thing is, you won't be able to tell by looking at it that it would work. That's We sort of know that because of the nature of gnarly computation. We can't recognize the, the smart rule when we see it. But it, once you start running it and you find out it's nice to hang out with and it's designing the Eiffel Tower and writing opera, then you say, OK, it's rule 77. So we're home free. So let's take our break now. And uh, maybe I'll do, I think, well, maybe we'll just do discussion. Uh, there's a, something in the very last section I can tell you about, too, but maybe uh, might not get to that. Yeah, that's good for now.